All right. I want to tell you about a few stories that are from the news over just the last month in our country. Let me tell you about a woman in New Jersey, a young lady who fell and cut her face, so she went to the emergency room department near her. And she wasn't too bad, so they gave her an ice pack and a bandage and sent her home before admitting her, and then she got the bill. Over $5,700. Let me tell you about another story in Washington State about a young man who raped and took lewd photos of a high school girl as she was dying of an overdose. He received less than three years in prison. Let me tell you that just happened this week, a seven-year-old girl coming across our southern border in the United States looking for a better life who died of dehydration. We hear stories like in, this new, in the news like that, and our heart goes out, doesn't it? Because we all have inside of us a sense of what is right and what is wrong. And when we hear about injustices, we know that that's not right. That why is the world like this? We all have that sense inside of us, you know, even though our world today says that all truth is relative and there's no absolute truth, everybody knows that's bunk deep down inside. There's a professor of philosophy once who was teaching his class and he said, okay, I want people in here to raise their hands if they believe that there is such a thing as absolute truth and morality and justice. Nobody raised their hand. They all said, no, truth is relative. Justice is relative. Moral absolutes like that don't exist. So the professor said, that's fine if you all believe that. But if you don't change your opinion by the final, I'm going to fail you. To which the student said, that's not fair. Because internally we know that there is right or wrong, that there is fair and unfair, just and unjust. There was a great commercial by Ally Bank that came out a few years ago that I think illustrates this very well. Let's watch this short commercial. Would you like a poem? Doesn't her face say it all? She knows that's not fair. She knows that's not fair. We know in our hearts there's fairness, there's rightness, there's justice. But sadly, we live in a world of injustice. So what do we do about it? In our series, A Light Has Dawned, we've been looking at some of the prophecies that come hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born that point forward to his birth. And we're going to look at one of those prophecies today that talks about one of the lesser known aspects of Christmas. The fact that the birth of Jesus is the birth of justice. We don't realize this when we talk about who Jesus was, but what Jesus came, he lived out and he was justice for us. And he lived in such a way, he uh, interacted with people in such a way to give us an example. And then with his very life and death, he embodied justice for those who were less fortunate. And then because of that, we too can go out and serve with justice in our world. And that's what we're going to see today as we look at the prophecy from Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up your Bible with me there. Follow along on a smartphone. We'll have the verses up on the screen. We're going to see this prophecy because the birth of Jesus is the birth of justice. And maybe that's an aspect of Christmas you've never thought about before. But I want you to today. In verse 1 we read, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. 
from his roots a branch will bear fruit. Okay, we're going to stop there for just a second. So Isaiah is prophesying in a time of imminent danger, imminent destruction for the people of Israel. God's people had been the chosen nation of God, but they had turned away from God. They had stopped believing in him, stopped obeying the things that he told them to do. And one of the things in particular that they were doing was injustice. In fact, if you read throughout the prophets over and over again, they're being told, you're not being just, you're not serving the poor, you're not helping the needy again and again and again. And that was one of the many sins that God was saying, okay, because of that, you need to face some judgment. And God was sending right at this time, it was about 700 years before Jesus, this was just a few years before the nation of Assyria would come and take out Israel, the northern portion of God's people. And then just a few years after that, the Babylonian Empire would come and take out the southern tribes of Judah, all of God's people would basically be wiped out. They would be taken from their nation, taken out into exile. So basically what is being told here, and you can see this in the chapter before, is God is saying the tree that is Israel, my people, is going to get cut down. The axe is at the root of the tree, as even John the Baptist would say later. The axe is coming. It's going to be chopped down into a stump. But there's also a word of hope. In this word of judgment. Because inspired by the Holy Spirit, Isaiah said that a shoot will come up. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. A new tree is going to emerge. Have you ever seen that? When a tree gets chopped down by an axe or a chainsaw, it's there as a stump for a little while, but then sometimes a little shoot will come up. Like a, a new sprout will come up. It's a new tree forming. You're like, how did this happen? But somewhere in the roots is something good, and it's pulling up nutrients, and a whole new tree is forming from this old dead tree. And God's saying that is what is going to happen. A shoot will come up from his roots. A branch will bear fruit. But it says from the stump of Jesse... So in this prophecy, it's saying a good thing is about to happen. A new tree is about to emerge from the same old roots. But it's going to be a person, a descendant of Jesse. So who is Jesse? Anybody? David's father. King David, the great king of Israel who ushered in the golden age of Israel. His father's name was Jesse. And this prophecy is saying someone in the lineage of David will come. And he will be the Messiah, the chosen one, the Savior that everyone needs to look to because he will come up with this new tree for God's people. Now, I think that's really interesting because at the time that Isaiah was writing this, there was a bad king that was a descendant of David on the throne. He was not a good king. We saw Ahaz a little while back, a few weeks ago. He was not a good king. Things were not good. So when this prophecy comes, like, finally, is there going to be a good king? Is there going to be a good king like David? That will come. And then after uh, the Syrians and the Babylonians came in, they took David's descendant off the throne, and there was no one on the throne for hundreds and hundreds of years. And yet still, this prophecy was given in that time. And then what do we read? What do we read some 700 years after this prophecy was given? The first verse of our New Testament. Matthew 1, 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. And then goes this section of genealogy, which most of us just skip over if we're ever reading our Bible. Just skip over it. But what that genealogy is teaching us is that Jesus would be a direct descendant of that King David. 
Even though no one had been on the throne for hundreds of years, still one of his descendants carrying that same bloodline would come just as Isaiah had foretold. Pretty amazing. I think it's another interesting thing if we can go back to Isaiah 11.1. said, from the stump of Jesse. I found that fascinating and, and I really studied it because why would it focus on Jesse? Because Jesse was David's father. Why wouldn't it say from the lineage of David? Because Jesse wasn't a king. David was the king. But I think one really fascinating thing about it is where they were from. If you think about where David is from, most people think of the city of David. He wasn't born there, but it became his city, which still to this day is called the city of David. What do we call it? Jerusalem. Because David, when he became king, he captured that city and made it his capital and united the entire nation for the first time under his rule in his capital. It was the city of David. It still is the city of David. But there's another town where Jesse was from and lived. You know what that town is? Bethlehem. Interesting. It's saying this Messiah would come from the stump of Jesse, from the same location, I would say, as Jesse. Well, do you know who else was from Bethlehem? Interesting. Because 700 years later, Mary and Joseph would be pregnant with a child, right? But they actually lived in the region of Nazareth which is up north by the Sea of Galilee. And yet there was an emperor at the time who commanded that a census be given, and therefore Joseph and Mary went to Joseph's hometown where his family had been, which was the town of Bethlehem. This small podunk village of 200 people probably at the time. This little village where just happened them to go at that time when Mary was pregnant and she gave birth to Jesus. In fact, there's another prophecy that spells this out even clearer in Micah chapter 5. It says, But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. These prophecies given hundreds of years before Jesus was ever to come were saying where he was coming from, his origins, because they were ancient they went all the way back to King David, and here would be the Messiah from that lineage to come, and we know him as Jesus. Our prophecy in Isaiah goes on to describe what Jesus would be like. It says in verse 2 that the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Again, this is interesting. If you've ever read the Old Testament, all the books of the Bible that come before Jesus, the Holy Spirit, God's Holy Spirit, is spoken about. But whenever the Holy Spirit shows up, he only shows up for a certain amount of time. It says that the Holy Spirit would come on a person, someone like Samson, who when the Holy Spirit came on him had this ultra-strong strength, but then the Holy Spirit would leave him and he no longer had the strength. Or someone like Saul, that when the Holy Spirit came on him, he prophesied and he spoke out. God's words, but then the Holy Spirit would leave him and he would no longer do that. So you see the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament coming on someone for a certain amount of time and then leaving them. But here we read that the Holy Spirit will come on someone and rest on him. This is interesting because then we look at the life of Jesus before he ever performed a miracle, before he ever preached a sermon, before he ever did anything in ministry, he was baptized. And as he was going down, being immersed in the water by John the Baptist, it says that a dove descended. The Holy Spirit descended as a dove. So somehow the Holy Spirit came on Jesus at that time, and then and only then does he go out 
and teach and preach and have an authority that wasn't his own and perform miracles and heal people because he did it in the power of the Holy Spirit that stayed with him throughout his whole life. Again, this is talking about Jesus because the Holy Spirit would come on him. It would be a spirit of wisdom and understanding. It says in the scriptures that Jesus grew in wisdom. He could understand things that no one else could understand. And he had a spirit of counsel. He could see things and understand things that no one else could and of might. He had an authority when he spoke and a power to even cast out demons. The spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Not only did he know what God expected of him, he actually delighted in it. He enjoyed it and knew that he was doing exactly what he should do. Because Jesus fulfilled all the requirements that God had for him. God had said, this is what you need to do in the Old Testament. And finally, someone would come along filled with the Spirit of God that could actually do it. And that was Jesus. See, this whole prophecy is talking about Jesus and no other person. But it goes on to describe how Jesus would act in verse 3. In the second line, we read that he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth, says in verse 4. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. If we can go back to verses 3 and 4, when we... Read this description about who the Messiah would be like. It said he will be a judge, but he will be a good judge. And when it says that he will give decisions for the poor of the earth with justice he will bring, he will judge. If you're thinking, Matt, that doesn't sound very good. I don't want judgment. That means you haven't been wronged. Because if you have ever been wronged, you want a good judge to settle the matters for you. You want someone to bring you justice because you have been treated with injustice. And in our society, as in most societies in the world, all throughout history, is that it's the poor, the needy, that suffer injustice at a disproportionate amount to the rest of society. And when Jesus comes as the judge, this is a great hope to people who are in need. Finally, someone will come who won't judge by what he sees with his eyes based on the color of his skin or or the clothes that he wears or his background or nationality or even by the language that he speaks. He won't be judged by any of those things because Jesus will judge rightly. It says with righteousness. Righteousness means standing in the right before God and right before other people. And this is how the Messiah would come and judge the needy, giving them justice and decisions for the poor of the earth. One aspect that I think is so interesting about this is because it's saying that Jesus is fulfilling what David did. Did you know that David was a very just king? He was admired for it because when he finally did become king, he had to go to war with Saul's descendants. They were mad that David was going to take the throne, so it was a civil war for years. And finally, when the civil war was over, David took the throne, and everyone expected him to do what every other king had ever done throughout history and kill all the children and descendants of his former king, but he didn't do that. He said, where can I find one of Saul's descendants to show them him mercy? He found a young man named Mephibosheth. And this Mephibosheth was actually crippled. That's why he hadn't been killed out in battle. And David invited him into his home to eat at his table to treat him like his own child, showing him mercy. 
And just like David showed mercy to the people who needed it, so did Jesus. Jesus showed mercy. We need someone like this who doesn't judge by what he sees with his eyes or what he hears with his ears because all of us have problems with this. Let's just admit it. Every single human being struggles to judge people fairly. We judge people based on appearances, on preconceived notions about them. All of us do that. And we need someone like this to help us. We long for it. You know, I've told you before about this, but there's been a study that looked at infants. Babies as young as six months old discriminate, and they show preference to people of their same skin color than to people of a different skin color. We are tainted by sin from our birth. We don't judge people fairly. We discriminate unfairly. So when we read about someone who finally judges correctly, don't we long for someone like that? Don't we wish our society was made up of leaders and judges and police officers like that? Because we all sin and fall short of this standard that God has for us. And that's so important for us to see. Because we need someone like that. We need someone like that for once that can be a righteous judge and not put away people unfairly. When we hear about those sentences, sometimes they're way too lenient, right? How, how could they only get less than three years for that? And then you hear about someone else who's been in prison for decades and then gets exonerated by DNA evidence. And we're saying, how could that have happened? And studies are even showing now that eyewitness testimony isn't very trustworthy. You seen some of these? Because when we get in very stressful situations, when, like when crimes occur, we get this like, tunnel vision and we don't see all the things around us. So even eyewitness testimony that what people say can be false. And we realize that, that even eyewitness testimony, what people see with our eyes, it's so hard. That's why we've created a system with not only a judge, but a jury of our peers and then even after that, there can be appeals and an appellate court and then judges and Supreme Court because we know that our system is messed up. Even our judges, we have a way to remove them from office because all of us are tainted by sin. You know, we, as a society, we like to blame each other for all these problems of injustice. The poor blame those who are rich, the upper 1%. They're the ones withholding justice from us. The rich say, Oh, it's just the poor. They're the criminals, and they're the ones messing up our society. One race blames another. One nation blames another. We're all blaming each other and pointing the fingers back and forth. The individuals say, look, it's the system that's the problem. The system isn't just. And then the people in the system say, well, it's just a few bad individuals who are bad apples and corrupt the system. Well, which one is it? We're all unjust, and we've all fall short, and none of us judges perfectly. None of us judges righteously. We are all in the wrong. And that's why we need so much someone like Jesus to show us the way that justice is meant to be done. We need a Messiah who would come. And that's why when we look at the birth of Jesus, that it's the birth of justice is an amazing truth for us. Because finally someone would come who does what is right. And, and didn't D Jesus do this? Did you know he was called the friend of sinners? 
because he didn't care what people looked like or, or even the sins that they had committed. He associated with them. He loved them. He shared meals with them. The prostitutes, the outcasts, the lepers who were kicked out of society, he spent time with the destitute. But he also spent time with the tax collectors, the rich, the 1%, because he knew all of them needed mercy, knew all of them needed salvation. Jesus was a friend of sinners. And we're told about Jesus that he, did not, he knew what was in a man. That's what it says. He knew what was in a man because he could see past the surface. He would associate and teach women, which at the time was unheard of. They were his disciples. He taught them. And then Jesus would go with the Samaritans who were the outcasts, religiously, socially. They were a different ethnic group. We don't associate with them, but Jesus did. Because he could see what was in a man. And he can even see when the religious people who looked like they were great and everyone thought they were the best, he would go to those authorities and he would rebuke them with an authority, with the word of his mouth, as it says in the second half of verse 4. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. His very words brought judgment upon those who would act like they were the righteous ones when in fact they were the worst. He could see what was in a man. He could see that they were whitewashed tombs, just bones on the inside. No spiritual life or vitality. Jesus acted with justice. He treated people with fairness and justice, unlike anyone before him. But even more than that, he identified with the poor. I want you to think about this for a second. I got this concept from Tim Keller. And he said, just imagine that you were trying to set up a group of people or an institution or whatever, and you wanted your name to be known 2,000 years after you die by three quarters of the entire planet. You would want one quarter of the entire planet to have built their society and institutions and lives around what you taught. If you were to get all the best PR people in the world, all the best strategists to come in and try to help you figure out how could I get that way 2,000 years from now that everyone knows my name, do you know what they would tell you not to do? They would tell you not to be born in a stable that smelled of urine. They would tell you not to go to a podunk little village of 200 people. They would tell you not to go associate with the lowly and the outcasts spending time helping the people. They would tell you not to spend just three years ministering and teaching. They wouldn't tell you definitely don't die a disgraceful death. But that's exactly what Jesus did. He literally became poor to associate and identify with those who were poor. And through his life and especially his death, he suffered injustice to bring us justice. Think about just his trial. There was no notice given. It was in the middle of the night. It was rushed. There was false testimony against him. And even when after that, the evidence didn't stand up and Pontius Pilate said, I can't convict him. He bowed to public pressure and then beat and crucified and executed this man as a criminal. That's the greatest injustice there ever has been because Jesus did nothing wrong ever in his life. But Jesus did all that. He became poor. He identified with the poor. He identified with the unjust in injustice in order to bring us justice and mercy. That's what we read in 2 Corinthians 
chapter 8. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. He suffered all that injustice to bring you mercy. Because all of us in our sin are unjust and we treat people poorly and unfairly. And yet God has mercy on us through his son Jesus Christ. And we can turn to him and find forgiveness for all those wrongs. And we could learn then to live a righteous life just like Jesus. And when we believe in him, we're also given the same Holy Spirit that Jesus had in his life. And that Holy Spirit rests on us. So we can go out and live like Jesus did and act like Jesus did. And then also associate and identify with those who are needy that we might help them. See that tree that would spring up from that stump, right? That tree would become a great tree that would bear fruit and have many branches. And Paul writes in Romans chapter 11 that when you believe in Jesus Christ, you are engrafted like a branch brought into that tree. And you are continuing on, even though Jesus has died, you are continuing on his life of justice for those who need it. You can go out and associate with those who are in need, to be generous, to be kind, to show mercy And I want to challenge you guys to do that. Tim Keller said that when the Spirit enables us to understand what Christ has done for us, the result is a life poured out in deeds of justice and compassion for the poor. This is what the Holy Spirit does for us when we realize what Christ has done for us. And so I want to challenge you guys today. I want to give you a few applications. And the first one is to repent. Let's just admit it. All of us are sinful. All of us have treated people poorly, and we have judged by appearances. We have judged by appearances, and we need to repent of that. Every single one of us needs to admit that we have sinned so that we can move forward in God's forgiveness. The second thing we need to do is to learn to judge correctly. We need to learn to be like Jesus and follow his example. In fact, Jesus said this in John 7, 24. He said, stop judging by mere appearances But instead, judge correctly. This takes work. Do you know why we stereotype and discriminate? Because it's quick and easy. It's very quick and easy to look at someone and think you know all about them. It's very quick and easy to do that. And we do that because we want to be, just move quickly. We want to simplify things. It takes work and time to really get to know what's inside a person. It takes a lot of time. So I want to challenge you guys to take time with people i learned this because i i I had a whole notion in my head about what an illegal immigrant was an undocumented citizen but then a few years ago when i was in school i had a conversation with a young man in his early 20s who had been brought to this country from mexico by his parents when he was just a small boy he had no choice in the matter and now he was grown up he was an adult and he had no documentation And he didn't speak Spanish. He didn't know the Mexican culture. He had never been there. And he said, how could I go back to a country I don't know, to a people that I don't know, speak a language that I don't speak? What am I supposed to do? And he said, I work. He said, I even pay my taxes through somebody else's social security number. And I get none of the benefits that come alongside that. I don't get social security when I retire someday, if I can't ever do that. And I don't have health insurance because I can't get it. And he said, and every day when I do drive to work, and I work all day, every day, he said, I'm terrified that I might get pulled over and deported. 
Now, we have this notion in our mind about what someone like that is like, and then you meet the person and you realize it's way more complicated than you thought at first. It's difficult. It's complicated. It's hard. But that's what we have to do as Christians. We have to get to know the person, not the stereotype. But we also have to do deeds of justice. In Micah chapter 6, verse 8, we're told, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? We have to do acts of kindness and justice and mercy whenever and wherever we can. We need to learn how to do this, to act justly. Um, I, I heard a story about this Christian CEO. He owned a bunch of car dealerships. And he had instructed his salesman, just like every other car dealership in the, in the nation, to negotiate prices. But then, after a while, he did a big study on his sales. And he found out that time and time again, that women and minorities didn't negotiate as much, and they ended up paying higher prices for the same vehicles as white men. So he found out that the poorer you were, you paid more for the same product. And he realized as a Christian, that wasn't fair. He needed to change the whole system that was there. And he told his um, employees now, hey, if you're selling to people, give people the same price always so that we can be fair to all people. It takes challenge. You have to do challenging things like that to act with mercy, to act justice. We have to rethink how we do things. How can I treat people? Maybe you're not a CEO, but what thing can I do in my life, in my family, in my company, at my school? What can I do to treat people with more respect. In the bulletin, I gave you three simple steps of things that you could do um, to act with justice. And one of them, we have a benevolence fund here, and this is a way that we help people connected to our church that are struggling with finances, the poor. Um, and, and you could just give a simple gift that way. If you give a financial contribution to that, that's a simple way that you can help the poor. Um, what we do every week is, I don't know if you know this, but if you ever put cash in the wooden boxes on the way out, that goes to the benevolence fund. But you can direct your money on your check or even online. We have a special way to give to our benevolence fund. That's a simple way that you can do this. Another way, um, I love this. Ariel has the kids do this is what she calls a blessing bag. Maybe you've seen the kids do this at parents' night out. When they come here, it's not just free, or not free, but it's not just babysitting. They do this activity where they take a, you know, like a gallon bag and they put in a bottle of water and some food and some socks and maybe some other things um, just to bless someone who's in need. And this is a great thing that you can do as a family, as a project, just a simple way to do an act of justice or mercy for someone because it's not always best to give a handout to um, someone who's homeless. But you can give them a food or water. That's a great thing to do. Show them that you do have kindness and love in your heart towards them. You can do it to other people that are in need as well. So that's the second thing, the simple thing that you can do to do a deed of justice. And the third thing is to volunteer your time. Twice a month, we as a church go down and feed the homeless with the Denver Rescue Mission at the crossing. This is a great way to give your time to help people who are in need, to associate with them, to hang out with them and get to know them. Uh, There's other ways to volunteer in a church, but I just want to recommend that one because that's kind of an ongoing thing that we're always doing. So I want to encourage you guys, do an act of justice. And, And another thing that you can do, here's another application, it's just to speak out. Sometimes we just need to say something about the injustices we see with our eyes. We're told about this in Proverbs chapter 31. 
We're told, speak up for the people who have no voice, for the rights of all the down and outers. Speak out for justice. Stand up for the poor and destitute. We must use our voices because there are people that are maybe afraid or can't speak up or no one would listen to them. But if we have a voice, use your voice for good. If you see something, say something. Speak out against the injustices we see in our own lives. You know, most of the great reformers in our society have been Christian. Did you know that? They were inspired by their faith in Jesus to act out justice, to speak up. People like William Wilberforce or John Newton in England who fought the slave trade. People in our own country like Frederick Douglass who spoke up for abolition. Or Abraham Lincoln, Dorothy Day, Martin Luther King Jr. These great reformers were inspired and they spoke out with religious language because they used their faith to motivate them to do justice. And we should follow in their footsteps because those are the footsteps of Jesus. Because the birth of Jesus is the birth of justice. This is the last thing I want to say about these applications. Is that sometimes, no matter how hard we try, and we should try hard, we should speak out, we should do acts of generosity and mercy and kindness and justice. But our world is still unjust. It's still unjust. Nothing is ever made right but we can look forward to the Messiah coming again. We're promised not just that Jesus would come on Christmas 2,000 years ago, but that he would come back to finally set things right as the judge, to judge the living and the dead, to set up his kingdom here on earth where there would be no more injustice, that he would be the king of kings and lord of lords. So even though when things are like, Matt, it just doesn't seem like it's getting better, things even seem like they're getting worse, we can say, come Lord Jesus. And one day he will come back and make all things right. The birth of Jesus is the birth of justice. As I have the band come up right now, I want to challenge you guys in your world, in your life, in your business, and wherever you go to school, whatever you do, I want to challenge you to be a George Bailey. You know what I'm talking about? One of my favorite Christmas movies is It's a Wonderful Life. If you haven't seen it, go watch it, okay? It's a long movie. It's a long old movie, but it's great because in the movie if you remember the story or if you're going to watch it this week if you haven't right tells a story about george bailey the protagonist and he lives in a small town and he and his family run the savings and loan and they would give people loans that were poor for their houses and property that were very low interest rates and even when people couldn't pay them back they would offer them mercy and leniency on those loans and it helped many people get into housing. And in the story, George Bailey and his family did not become rich. In fact, they stayed poor. It didn't help them make a ton of money. But what's incredible about the story is that there's one point where he is thinking about committing suicide. He's standing up on the icy bridge, thinking about jumping into the water. And then an angel comes, right? Splashes in the water. And this angel then gives George Bailey a vision of what the world would be like without him. And it's a dark world, right? Things are not good. People are, are evicted from their homes. All their property is taken away from them because Potter, who came in and ran the savings of loan, doesn't give them generosity, doesn't give them kindness or justice. And people are fighting. There's conflict. It's a terrible land that's very dark, the city that he returns to without him. I think that's how we should be that we should be those agents of mercy and justice and generosity so that if you were to take us away, our world would be a much worse place. We're called to be the George Baileys of our world. 
that like Jesus, to go in and bring justice and mercy, to judge rightly, just like Jesus. And we can do it, empowered by his spirit, because the birth of Jesus is the birth of justice. Don't forget that this Christmas. Let's pray. Lord God, this aspect of Christmas, maybe we've never thought about that the birth of Jesus is the birth of justice, but I, I hope that we would understand that truth and we'd begin to live it out. That we'd look back to Jesus and how he lived his life so that we could get a model for how we could live in our world. That we could have that same mercy and justice and kindness and compassion that Jesus showed to others. And that empowered by your Holy Spirit, we could go out and be those agents of justice, to act justly, to do mercy, for those who are in need and that we too could be the George Baileys in our world. Lord, empower us to do that this Christmas. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.